Hey, I just got back from Berkeley uh, in conjunction with Campus Crusade for Christ at Berkeley, the Center for Marriage at Biola. We partnered together and went to Berkeley and gave talks on what does it mean to have a flourishing relationship and added the spiritual perspective onto it. Many Berkeley Christian students would say they'd go their entire time at Berkeley and never have anybody who's religious, let alone Christian. So pray for the ministries at Berkeley that God is at move and let's pray that uh, we'd see something happen on that campus. It's a tough place if you're a Christian trying to be there. Maybe there's two uh, Christian faculty on all the faculty at Berkeley. So let's keep praying for that. Uh, James was in charge of his own movement. He was called the Bishop of Jerusalem. James wants you to focus on your self-talk. He wants you to understand what is it that goes through your head when you hit a trial. Do you immediately think that God is punishing you? Or is God inviting you to a divine conversation? Uh, What is your self-talk when you learn that true religion in the sight of God is to care for orphans and widows in distress? Is that something for other people to do? Or is that something for your family, uh, your roommates to tackle and to be a part of? Well, I try to put this off as long as possible, but we're finally here. We're at the tongue. James has much to say about the tongue, much about the power of the tongue. He got it from Jesus. He got it from the book of Proverbs, and now he's continuing with this kind of thought. So let's focus on the power of words. I have three boys. All three of them played baseball. Here we go. Is it up there? Okay. No, that's me talking to myself. There we go. All three of them played baseball. Uh, they all three were pitchers, and one day I was throwing balls to one of my kids. We were in a net. We, I had a, a protector as I was throwing these balls, and uh, we finished. I put the thing away, and my son says to me, Dad, pitch one more to me. Uh, I, I didn't want to pull the whole thing back out, so I said, okay, sure. I throw him a ball, and hits a line drive right to the thigh, puts me on the floor. I, w- I thought I'd seriously hurt myself. I limped for months after that. The power of a hard ball hitting the thigh is not pretty. The book of Proverbs says language can do that. Just as hard as I was hit, language can hurt each other in other ways. book of Proverbs says this about speech. It says, your words are like the thrust of a sword that can impale a person. Another proverb says a word spoken in the wrong way can break a person's bone. Perhaps the most powerful verse about the power of language comes when the, when the writer of Proverbs says, life and death is in the power of the tongue. What we say can impart life or what we can say can impart death. Uh, James is going to continue this. He's going to continue with this idea about language. So let's read from God's word. So please stand with me. If you can't stand, assume a, a position of reception. And let's take a minute to prepare our hearts to hear from the Holy Spirit via God's word. James chapter 3, verse 2. We, are all, we all stumble in many ways. Those who are never at fault in what they say are perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. 
Or take our ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of birds, animals, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by human beings, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth comes praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Have a seat. What is God's reaction to our words? Interesting that the book of Proverbs gives us an inside perspective of how your words create an emotional response on God's behalf. In a fascinating passage in Proverbs chapter 6, the ancient writer says this, There are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven, which are an abomination to him. That word hates in the Hebrew, it has, um, it's linked to the word detestable. This is what God finds detestable. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devised wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. I think it's fascinating that of the seven, four have to do with language. One, haughty eyes would be an arrogant posture towards a person. Nonverbal communication is incredibly important. It accounts for maybe 60%, of, 70% of all of our communication. A lying tongue and false witness saying the exact same thing, that whoever spreads deceit, God hates. And a person who spreads strife. But Paul would pick up on this in his letter to Ephesus when he says, here are the things I want you to put off. I want you to put off, Paul says, slander and clamor. Now, what's the difference between the two? Slander is if I speak to you one-on-one and I say something negative about another person, that's slander. But if enough, I say that to enough people, that groups of people start thinking negatively about a person, that's then called clamor. It's a bunch of people coming together and speaking negatively about a person. Uh, Matthew says this in chapter 12. This is Jesus speaking. But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. Let's talk about judgment real quick. Non-Christians are going to be judged by God. It's called the white throne judgment. All of humanity will be judged on whether you accepted Christ as Savior. What did you do with Jesus' claim that I am the way, the truth, and the life? No man comes to the Father but through me. Your eternal destiny hangs in the balance of how you resolve that issue. Christians, your eternal destiny does not hang in the balance. God's love for you isn't up for grabs. He loves you. You're going to heaven. But he calls his children to him. And this is what Paul would say is the great seat of judgment. This is where as a Christian, you're going to be before God, before Jesus. And you're going to have to give an account of your life. Isn't that interesting? And God does grade on a curve, the scriptures say. So depending on how much training you have received, depending on how much you've heard, how much you've been exposed to, it goes up. 
Teachers are held at a higher standard than students. So at the uh, judgment seat of Christ, God is going to say to you, hey, you had non-Christian neighbors. I'm just curious why you didn't share the gospel with them. You had non-Christian family members. I'm curious why you never presented the gospel to them. Uh, You had money. You grew up in the wealthiest country on the planet. What did you do with your money? Uh, You heard that 3,000 kids die a day in Africa because of malaria transmitted by mosquitoes and that a $15 medically treated mosquito net sold by UNICEF could save a family of six or seven for up to three years. Why didn't you buy a mosquito net? Or two? Or five? Or 50? Right? Now, that's going to be an interesting moment with you and your Savior is he's going to say, you heard preaching from Chuck Swindoll. You heard preaching from Dale Burke, from Mike Erie. What did you do with it? Remember Eugene Peterson, we are educated beyond our obedience. Right? So at the judgment seat, it's going to be an interesting moment, face-to-face with your Savior, and he's going to ask, what did you do with my life uh, that I gave you? Now, C.S. Lewis says we can all take a collective sigh of relief, At the end, no doubt there'll be many tears shared, but at the end, all of us will hear the divine accolade, well done, thou good and faithful servant. But Jesus is serious, and one thing he's going to hold us accountable for is your language, is all the words that you've used. Imagine that. Uh, One of my favorite shows uh, is The King of Queens. In it, you get this great couple. They love each other. They're trying to work it out. They have a ton of arguments along the way. Well, Carrie, one day, she's a businesswoman. She buys a dictaphone uh, that, that will translate your speech into written text. She's working on it, and he comes home, and he hasn't done something she's wanted him to do. So an argument ensues. She takes it off, sets it down, but doesn't turn it off. So it is translating their argument. The next day, they are horrified to read a transcript of what they said to each other. Can you imagine if that was true of you? That somebody followed you around every day and transcribed what you said to other people. Now, here's a really alarming fact. It seems that Jesus is saying the same will be true of your thoughts. That your thoughts also you'll have to give an account for. Remember when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, I say, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed a form of adultery. So in your heart, right, you can commit sins. So I think at the judgment seat of Christ, we could well expect that not only will it be your language, but your thoughts Jesus is going to want to inspect. Do they impart life or do they impart uh, death? That should humble us. So let's talk about imparting death for a second. How might your words impart death? Let me show you a public service announcement that's deeply disturbing but very powerful. Where are you? What is wrong with you? The food not good enough for you? You're nothing but trouble. You hear me? You're useless. (coughs) Psychologists talk about something called reflected appraisal, 
which means the significant others in your life, a significant other is a person that you've given power to. What they say actually impacts you. So you do what is called reflected appraisal. Uh, What they say, you actually start to reflect. So if it's positive or negative, you start to actually reflect those kind of words. Verbal abuses, you constantly hear this negative narrative. Somebody is speaking death into your life, and you allow that person access to who you are, your self-image. Some psychologists call this the Michelangelo effect. Just like um, Michelangelo would paint a painting or a sculpture, these people are sculpting how you feel about yourself. So we need to be careful, the psalmist says, and the writer of Proverbs, Do not impart death to people. Be very careful of your words. But we can also impart life to each other. So I love these two images. Uh, One, my favorite study about women is that, ladies, you know, uh, a stereotype is that women are really bad drivers. It, It tends not to be borne out in fact. But a stereotype is that women are bad drivers. So two communication theorists wanted to do a very interesting experiment. They took women and they broke them up into two separate groups. They were going to enter a machine that simulated parallel parking, which if the stereotype was true, ladies, you'd be really bad at, okay? Um, So one group, all they did was explain what the project was. You go into the simulator, you try to parallel park. The second group, they are given compliments before they attempt to go into the machine in parallel park. By the way, these compliments aren't about driving. They're just compliments. So things like, um, hey, on the application, we enjoyed reading it. It's obvious that you're a really good writer. Uh, We read your application. It's obvious that you think very deeply about kind of things. We read that you're a mother, and we think that that's really admirable that you would take time to buy just compliments. They then went in the machine, and don't you know that the second group outperformed the first group. Why? The lead researcher said, compliment a person, and they will have self-confidence, and that self-confidence will help them do any type of task, including parallel parking. So compliments are incredibly important in bolstering our self-confidence. The second image uh, is a figurine uh, reminding me of the power that words have on the people that we love. Uh, A friend of mine, Brian Goins, speaks at Family Life Marriage Conferences along with me, and he tells an amazing story. Uh, There was a group of five of Brian and his friends. They kind of did life together, five guys. Well, over time, four of the five get uh, get engaged and married. There's one lone handout, uh, holdout. So over the years, uh, they get word that he's gotten engaged, the one lone holdout. So they actually had this function where they get together and he brings his fiancée. He walks in and he introduces the fiancée to everybody. He goes, hey, I want you to introduce you to the most beautiful woman in the world. Just so happened it's my fiancée. Right? And all the married guys are like, oh my, that's not going to last. That's just what young people engaged do. Right? Well, now years go by, and everybody starts having kids, including the guy who just got married to his wife. Now they have this huge reunion, and Brian is at the reunion and meets one of the kids of this one lone handout who's now married and has kids. And the kid says this, hey, I want you to introduce the most beautiful woman in the world. Just so happens it's my mother. And Brian said this, Brian said this, imagine that woman. Hearing that narrative her entire life, from her husband and now from her kids, he said, Tim, that was one of the most confident, beautiful women I have ever met. 
You know what my reaction to that was? I grabbed my kids. I was like, come here. <laughs> the next time mom walks in the room, you say, what's wrong with you guys? Come on. So imagine hearing that, that narrative over and over and over. It would impart life. It would give us such confidence. Right? Here's Jesus' view of words. Why does he care about words? He says this, for out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus says this, I can tell you what your heart is because I listen to your words. They are a reflection of what your heart is. So men and women, we need to be deeply concerned about our language because it reflects who we really are. And that's what Jesus is going to hold us accountable to. James says this, anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect able to keep their whole body in check. Remember, the purpose of the book of James, as I argued two weeks ago, is that this is a very religious climate that the new church is in. So James is saying to the 12 tribes that have been dispersed, here's a litmus test to see if a person has the Holy Spirit. The litmus test is, can they control their tongue? Because I'm telling you right now, James writes, the only person to control his or her tongue is a person who has the Holy Spirit. So can you control your tongue? Do we have the ability to do that? Now, James gives motivation to do this. He first gives negative motivation, and then he gives positive motivation. Here's the negative motivation he gives. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire. Now, don't think of a forest made up of sequoias. Think of a forest made up of tumble um, brush. Right? He's speaking about Jerusalem, most likely. So um, we know what that's like here, right? Wildfires are very serious. There's a, a, a lightning strike and a small little spark sets off a massive fire. Remember Bray Olinda High School a couple years ago got hit by wildfires. James is saying, don't be the spark that starts a wildfire. Don't be a spark that sends dissension through the church. Now he makes a very provocative observation about the tongue. James says this, it, your tongue, corrupts your whole body and sets the whole course of your life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. Now, what's he saying is this. I believe that language is one of Satan's top strategies to disrupt the church. That what we say to each other, slander or clamor, is how Satan disrupts the movement of God. And James is saying... Do not let Satan influence your speech. By the way, this isn't just a belief that the ancient church had. We know from archaeology that many people groups all throughout history have believed your tongue is the number one way that evil spirits gain access into a person. So what's the uh, most common lipstick color is red. But do you know why red is the most common color? Uh, Go back to ancient civilizations and you read this kind of stuff. They believed that the mouth is how evil spirits would gain access. So they would paint red on their lips as one big stop sign to evil spirits that you cannot enter my mouth. Isn't that interesting? So human beings have always known that their language can be a great cause for good or for bad. And if it's for bad, you are giving access to demonic realities and giving access to evil spirits. Satan loves to pour gasoline on our words. He loves to use it to disrupt. So here's a positive motivation from James. 
Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Now, where did he get that from? He got it from Jesus. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called the children of God. You know, I write this on the board sometimes, but I remove the first part of it. I say, blessed are the blank. They should be called the children of God. And I say, hey, what would you put in the blank? And they'll say like evangelists, missionaries. Jesus says, no, 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 the peacemakers. They will be called the children of God. Men and women, we have forgotten this as the church. We've simply forgotten it. I was at UNC Chapel Hill for seven years. I did my master's, my PhD. The reputation we have with non-Christians is horrible. Uh, they, uh, they think that we are the pit bulls of the culture war. They think that we are individuals who don't care about other people, that we don't, we're not compassionate towards other people. If, if things don't go our way, we pick up our toys and we go home. We just break away from society. We break away from culture. There were two sociologists who wrote a book while I was there describing the religious right. You know what one word they picked to describe us? They picked the word mean. You are mean towards the gay community. You are mean towards people on welfare. You are mean towards immigrants and illegal aliens. My goodness, how did we get that reputation? So we need to be the peacemakers. We need to be the ones that can step into situations and stand up for our views and the kingdom, but do so in a way that we can foster peace and civility. By the way, there's a great proverb, Proverbs 16, 7, that says this. When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies live at peace with him. So men and women, there is a way that we can stand up for the kingdom and still produce civility and peace even with the people that we don't agree with. James says this, great point. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who've been made in God's likeness. Makes no sense to James whatsoever. Here's what James is saying. You can't compliment Will Smith and then pick on his son, Jaden. You can't say to Will Smith, Hey, you're a great actor. I absolutely love right, your, your present, uh, portrayal of Muhammad Ali. But your son is a horrible actor. What, what would Will Smith say? You, you don't praise me and then pick on my son. You just can't do that. Hey, you want to get Tim Yohoff mad? You say something negative about my boys. You say something negative about them. And I'm, I'm at DEFCON 1 in a heartbeat. I mean, you just get a big reaction pretty quickly. Uh, my kids all played Pop Warner football. Jeremy, my youngest, uh, was on an unbelievable team. This team twice came one game away from playing for the National Pop Warner Championship in Florida. And at each one of those games, I prayed the parents' prayer, which is let my son do really well and let us lose in triple overtime, right? Because who wanted to raise $40,000 to go to Florida, right? So Jeremy was on this unbelievable, oh, stop, I'm not the only one who's prayed that, trust me. So, so we're at this scrimmage, and again, the coaches are on the field because it's a scrimmage. Again, these kids are like, we're talking 9, 10, 11, Okay, and, and Jeremy's team is unbelievable. We're, beat, we're not supposed to keep score, but a parent leaned over to me and said, I think the score is 52 nothing, and their team has not gotten a first down. That's how good we were. Jeremy was in for the first eight minutes. They pulled all the starters. Now our fourth string is killing their first string. 
The game's over. I'm grading papers. I mean, we're done, right? Uh, there's a coach, a, a very large man. So this, the team is down 52 nothing on their side. This is men against the boys, okay? He grabs like a 10-year-old, yanks his face mask, and says to him, what the blankety-blank is wrong with you? And I pop my head up and I yell, hey, knock it off. A mom leans over and says to me, he's still looking at you. <laughs> and I had one of those yellow markers. I said, you ever been hit with a marker before? Just doesn't leave a stain. It stings. Okay? So I just, I just looked up at him. Now, here's what's amazing about that story. That wasn't even my son. I, I didn't even know that child. Imagine that was my child. Listen, I don't care if you're a coach. I don't care if you're a principal. You don't lay a hand on my child. And you can coach my child. You don't berate my child. You don't do it. That's what James is saying. How can you praise God and then look at somebody made in his image and belittle that person? By the way, Paul's going to say, and your enemies. And your enemies. I want you to speak well of them. I want you to feed them. Give them something to drink in the name of Christ. So men and women, we've got to find a way of loving God and being known as people who love everyone, even our opposition. Even the very people who'd want to close these doors, we love them as we oppose them. I want to call us to a standard. Now here's the good news. The standard is really low today. Okay? I want to call us to rise above the bar because the bar is pretty low today, okay? I teach rhetoric, which is public persuasion. So this is CNN's headline after the second presidential debate. Trump-Clinton wage scorched earth debate. Men and women, it is so sad what is happening today. And I don't care who you vote for. I don't care if you vote. There's other ways of stewarding your vote. But I'm saying today we have reached a low that is deeply discouraging. And I don't know what to do about it. So I, I think we can be passionate about a political candidate, but we don't have to drag the other person through the mud as we support our candidate. There's got to be ways that we can support something and be above how other people are doing it today. Now, where would we ever get wisdom to do this? I suggest John Wesley. In the 1700s, uh, whoops, here we go. In the 1700s, John Wesley gave a sermon uh, where he did talk about politics. But he later described what he said in the sermon to a friend, and this is what he said. I, John Wesley, met those of our society who had votes in the ensuing election and advised them this way. Number one, to vote without fear or reward for the person they judged most worthy. Number two, to speak no evil of the person they voted against. And number three, to take care their spirits were not sharpened against those that voted on the other side. Men and women, we need to be compassionate in our critiques of other people. We need to oppose people, but do it in a way that Paul would say, speak the truth, but do it in love. 
You know what Paul says in Galatians 6.1? I think this is a fascinating passage. In Galatians 6.1, Paul says this. When a person is caught in a trespass, Paul says, right? So this person's guilty. There's no question. This person was caught in a sin, a trespass. You who are spiritual, ouch, I want you to restore such a person with a spirit of gentleness. Paul says, can evil be overcome? Yes, with goodness. So men and women, we need to enter into public disagreement. And and I think this election gives us a great opportunity to do it in such a way that people think we're different. And we're different because we do have compassion and neighbor love for everybody. So here are two ways to think about this. Uh, My son, Jeremy, came home one day and he drew me a horse. It did not look like a horse. It looked like a mutant horse. This looked like a walking uh, dead horse, okay? What did I say to my son? At that point, what did I say to my son? I said, you did not draw this. (laughs) Dad, I did. I drew this. No, you traced this. This is, no, Dad, I didn't. Jeremy, this is, wow. Can I put this in my office? Yes. You can put it in your office, Dad. Can I get more? I I want a whole herd of mutant horses, right? (laughs) Now, imagine if I would have said to my son, when he gives me a horsey that just doesn't look like a horse, if I would have said, Jeremy, seriously? This is a horse? Remind me never to play Pictionary with you on my team, right? It's like, (laughs) wow. Would he ever have drawn a horse for me again? The answer is no. I spoke death to him. Okay? Here's what we do all the time. Here's what we do with our spouse. Our spouse tries to do something, tries to clean up, tries to be a spiritual leader in the home. What do we say? Seriously? That was it? That's your idea of date night? That's your idea of, right, taking the initiative? So what do we do? Guess what? We're not going to do it anymore. I'm not going to do it if that's the reaction against me. My wife shares a great illustration uh, at family life marriage conferences. You know the game Whack-A-Mole? You know this game? They played at arcades. You put quarters into a machine and there's holes everywhere and moles pop up. And your job is you have this big hammer and you're to whack the moles. And you get points for every mole that you whack, right? Whack a mole. As long as you put money in, the moles are going to pop up and you're going to whack them. In real life, that doesn't happen. In real life, your spouse says something, a child says something, a coworker says something, and they get hit with negativity every single time. Guess what? They don't pop up anymore. So you wonder why your spouse doesn't take the initiative? You wonder why your kids never give suggestions anymore? Right? It's because they get whacked every single time. And the whack could be, oh, that's a good idea. I would do this. That's not how my parents did it. That's not how Swindoll's church did it. That's not how we used to, right? Those are gentle whacks, but those are whacks. So let's impart life to each other. All of calm theory could be broken down into start with points of agreement and move towards a disagreement. By the way, cognitive complexity says if you can't find anything positive about a person, it's because you're not cognitively complex. Right? So if you look at a political candidate and can't find one, I loved the last question of the debate. 
the second one. And by the way, they stuck it in. They knew they were out of time, but they knew this had gotten so bad. The rancor of this debate was so bad. They added a question that they weren't going to have time for. And the question was, tell me one thing you admire about each other. Don't you love that question? And if you look at another person and say, I can't think of one, you're not cognitively complex. You become so skewed that you are not perceiving reality. So men and women, let's be generous to each other. Two more images. 2007, Detroit, Michigan had a funeral. It was covered nationally. The amazing thing about the funeral is there's nobody in the casket. They weren't burying a body that day. They were burying a word. One word they had deemed so offensive, so dehumanizing, that with the mayor's approval, and he was there, they buried a word that day. And you could actually go to Detroit and visit the gravesite. You know what the word was? It was the N-word. They said, this is a dehumanizing word. Let's bury it. Men and women, what words do you need to bury? What words do you use that are dehumanizing, that are negative? No good can come out of these words. So let me give us a challenge, myself included. I was the interim teaching pastor for WAC, Whittier Area Community Church, a couple years ago, and we did this. It was so brutally difficult, I just wanted to mess up your week, okay? Here's what I'm going to challenge us to do. For one week, no negativity. For one week, no negative words or dialogues. Right? Oh, it's so hard. Guys, I remember preaching this a couple years ago. Noreen and I got back home, and I just couldn't believe how, what a negative person I am. Everything I was like, well, can you believe... So- I can't believe that person. Who does he think? So Noreen and I started doing the Jesus prayer, one of the ancient prayers of the church. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. And by the way, I think Jesus is talking about our thought life too. So you can go like this. Oh, that person. And I think Jesus is saying, really? Those thoughts? So one week, no negativity. Now, let's talk about the difference between a criticism and a complaint. A complaint is you have every right to say certain things in a relationship. For example, let's say your roommates are really messy. A complaint is, hey, listen, guys, this room is, this, our apartment is so messy. Hey, and I, I know I add to it. Can we, can we, like, maybe think about ways that we can clean the apartment on a regular basis? That's a complaint, and it's totally legitimate. A criticism is, hey, you're a slob. You're a slob. Or, hey, I know you don't care about how the apartment looks. I do, and I was wondering if we could do... See what I do? I'm impugning your character. So we're not going to do that for a whole week. A whole week... We're not going to have negative conversations. Now, one woman came up to me between services. You do know the third presidential debate is this week. I said, (laughs) I absolutely do know that. Right? By the way, it was so funny. Billy has a son. I joke with him. I'm a Detroit Lions fan. Billy's son is a Packers fan. So um, I said to Billy's son between services, I leaned over and said, listen, Packers got a win today. They're playing the Cowboys. I hate the Cowboys. Billy leaned over and he said, hey, 
What about the negative language? I was like, I'm deeply distressed about the Cowboys. <laughs> so, one week, no negativity. We can cheer for our person and not drag down the other person. By the way, John Gottman talks about the critical startup in conversations. He says the first minute will determine the entire conversation. Right? The first minute of my child showing me a horse will set the tone for the rest of the conversation. You start off defensive, angry, and sarcastic, the conversation's going to end with anger and sarcasm. But if we start positive, so let's be known as people who speak life, not death. So here's what we're going to do. Everybody stand. If you can't stand, just assume a posture of reception. Now, don't do this if you're not serious. But we're going to invite the Holy Spirit to draw to attention our words. And we're going to invite him to do that for an entire week. Okay? So, join with me if you want to inspect your language via the Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you that you imparted life to us. We thank you that Jesus calls us sons and daughters. Father, I pray that um, in a culture of such negativity that we would catch ourselves. Father, that we'd be peacemakers. That we would offer generous complaints. Complaints spoken in truth and love and with gentleness. But Father, we would not criticize. We would not demean people's character. So, Father, starting today, we give you permission to sift through our language, uh, knowing you're going to hold us accountable to it. So let us help each other as a community. Let us catch ourselves. Let's be people who impart light and life. We do this for Jesus' sake to be witnesses. Amen.